Welcome to COVID Demoted, a surplus media podcast. Uh, today, I am welcoming Dr. Stephen Reisner. Stephen Reisner is a psychoanalyst and political activist in New York. Uh, he's currently in France. He is a founding member of the Coalition for an Ethical Psychology, an advisor on psychology and ethics for Physicians for Human Rights, and a past president of Psychologists for Social Responsibility. He was a leader in the successful movement to prohibit psychologists from their central role in abusive CIA and military interrogation and detention processes. As a result of those efforts, psychologists were removed from detention operations at Guantanamo Bay in 2016. Dr. Reisner has been a consultant on trauma, torture, political violence, disaster, and resilience in the face of catastrophic events for the United Nations, the International Criminal Court, the International Organization for Migration, and other humanitarian and mental health organizations, and has consulted in Haiti, Kosovo, Kurdistan, East Africa, and for the French Ministry of Health. Dr. Reisner is the host of Madness, a podcast, and has contributed to a lot of media. Very, very glad to welcome Stephen Reisner to the podcast today. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Uh, so what I was hoping we could talk about today is to talk about trauma and what what is that concept for, for people that because I think a lot of people are going through, uh, I mean, a lot of emotional turmoil. We don't know what's going on as we're all in lockdown. Um, many of us or some people are, are seeing their relatives get sick or they're getting sick and there's a lot of fear. And I wanted to talk about trauma and, and sort of understand what that is. Yeah. Well, yes, a trauma is an overwhelming experience, very often an overwhelming experience that one hasn't had before. So it includes an element of shock. It usually includes a threat of illness or harm or death. But really... To conceptualize trauma, we have to see it as a kind of an after effect of a traumatic event or situation. And one of the things that is happening now is that we not only don't have the after effects of the event, um, but we don't actually even know when the after will be. So, yes, we are in a highly stressful situation. People are having emotions that they're, many of them are unfamiliar with, reactions to a circumstance that we're all familiar with. And for some people, the stress is extremely overwhelming in that some people have relatives are getting sick, some people are sick themselves, some people will lose people, some people have lost people, some people are alone. Some people are cooped up in a very small space uh, under enormously stressful conditions with people who they often get along with, but it may be overwhelming. People have kids at home. People have to juggle many things without any outlet. So yes, the stress is currently uh, potentially enormous. Um, and th then there's another layer that I don't think we give enough attention to, and that is how much loss there is in just seeing the transformation of everything that we know. I mean, I came out of New York City, and 
I came out of New York City already seeing New York City as a city in a, not only, it, it, it wasn't in official lockdown at that point, um, but it was a city in mourning. It was a city where the effects, it, it, it looked like, uh, like preparing for a war when I left. And the loss of New York as a city, the loss of the way we all spent our days, all the things that were familiar, being able to walk down the street without uh, worry, the possibility of going to a grocery store or a restaurant or a bar or whatever um, without worry and having it be familiar. All that is gone. The familiar is gone. So there's an underlying sense of mourning that we're all experiencing, no matter what our specific stress, no matter what traumatic experiences may be. So there's there are many layers that are affecting everybody emotionally, uh, economically, socially. Indeed. Um, yes, there's been a lot of loss. Uh, we're talking on April 12th, uh, and today the count says that 110,000 plus people have died from COVID-19 in New York State. And so I think it's understandable for people to be feeling overwhelmed. Um, and in your practice as a as a therapist for individuals, but also in working in uh, post-war what exactly is your professional practice related to to those two sort of types of cases? Yeah, well, the most important thing for each of those cases, and you know, I was in Pristina, Kosovo, a couple of weeks after the the war was over. Uh, people were just returning. A lot of people stayed in Pristina, but others uh, returned to the country and. To the city, and there was no electricity, and there was, you know, the results of war everywhere. And I have to say that, you know, it, it, again, there's such a the the palpable level of everything being different right now, and a kind of mourning process and a kind of shock process, you know, is not completely different than uh, what New York was starting to be when I left, and what I imagine New York is. To some extent, now Detroit must be, New Orleans must be, Bergamo in Italy, and various places. So, but the most important thing for people to understand is that their emotional reactions are to be expected, are normal. In fact, I wouldn't want people to be reacting without shock and stress and sadness. Uh, at this point. It's very realistic. And not only that, but to be on edge. Because when you're experiencing something unique and terrible, you need all your emotional resources to be firing, um, to be activated, because that is necessary for self-protection, for care of others, for being a human being in an unusual situation. So I would n I think that we have to understand basically that suffering is not pathological. Suffering is not an illness. Suffering is sometimes what happens to human beings in terrible circumstances. No, suffering is invariably what happens to human beings in terrible circumstances. And it is an essential part of what keeps us human. And it is the attempt not to suffer, not to mourn, 
not to pay attention to our vulnerability, our mortality, that I would say is makes us susceptible to illness, even makes us susceptible to a post-traumatic stress problem. So you're saying, in fact, we need to suffer in order to get to what comes after or get to, to, to process these experiences in a healthy way? Right. Well, you're, yeah, you're asking a very important question. Is there a value to suffering? And um, I'm not a big proponent of suffering for its own sake. I don't believe that we should be suffering for its own sake. I, but I do believe that the question becomes what we, how we experience the suffering, what, it, what we learn from suffering, how we develop our, our, our sense of you know, what's important, who, who we are, what kind of character we, we, we have. Um, in the face of suffering. So, you know, it's it, it, there's a concept that we've kind of lost, which has to do with gained wisdom from life experience. Um, so much, well, especially in the United States, which uh, where so much of our daily life is about turning to a kind of consumerism to uh, avoid the problems of everyday life, that we are not good at uh, learning from adversity and from becoming wise. And this is the, 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 the idea that we are losing, the idea of wisdom from experience and turning to our elders who may have been through something and can teach us how to uh, develop a sense of character, how to be good to others, what our priorities should be when people are suffering. Um, and I see the lack of this, um, the, the lack of uh, compassion, understanding, generosity uh, in uh, our complete inability in America anyway, to have prepared for this, to have protected the vulnerable, to, uh, to respond to the, those in need during this crisis. And, uh, and so what we end up having are that the vulnerable are suffering at much greater rates than you know, the privileged. And uh, the coverage of the suffering seems to me to be prioritizing the privileged over the extremely vulnerable. And so we, we have, you know, disparities uh, in terms of class and race. You know, I'm all in favor of New York City's uh, every evening banging on pots in, you know, in thanks to our frontline medical staff. I think it's also time that we found ways of thanking or uh, supporting the frontline staff, you know, the essential laborers in New York City who are overwhelmingly minority and uh, working class, uh, poorer, obviously working class, but poorer, who are being paid ridiculously low wages, who don't have health insurance, and who are going out there in order that the more privileged classes can quarantine themselves and stay safe. I, I find that we really need a thoroughgoing trauma 
to so that we can reevaluate and our priorities, our values, our ethics, our morals, and learn from them and make fundamental changes in our society. So yes, I think that terrible experiences give us an opportunity to see what kind of moral fiber fabric we're made of. You know what 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 who we are. Indeed, we're seeing um, in the sort of, um, you know, before this crisis, through social media and through the news media, that some of the uh, polarization in the U.S. society um, is kind of manifesting and finding its own reflection in social media um, and sort of reinforcing those, um, the polarization that is sort of underway as the United States is going through an election cycle. And people are finding ways to further associate with their in-group, um, whether they're coming from privilege or whether they're coming from like a particular region. Um, and my question is, in this time of crisis and and fear and suffering, um, there will naturally be a tendency for people to uh, band with their in-group and try to find some kind of comfort there or some kind of security in this crisis. I was wondering if you could help us understand, you know, why does that happen? What are some ways that that process occurs? Um, could you help us understand that? Yeah, that I mean, that is so important because I don't think that in times of crisis, people only align with their own narrow kind uh, universally, and I don't think it has been true historically. I think it is the result of a particular kind of capitalism that has taken hold in, at least in America, in the last 30, 40 years. Uh, I'll give you an example. I mean, to me, a major turning point happened after September 11th. Generally, when there is a disaster, people reach out and make contributions and help the people who are suffering based on their need. After September 11, um, there was a huge outpouring all of, of, you know, from across the world and certainly from across America. Money was raised in huge amounts for the families of the people who died in September 11th, for people, you know, to give help to people and families of the injured in September 11th. And for the first time in my memory, the funds were distributed not according to the needs of the families of the victims. But according to financial actuarial tables based on the lost income that each of the of the people who died in the in in the tragedy in the mass murder, the potential income that they would have earned over a lifetime. So what that means is that the decision on how to help people who died in September 11th was made based on the income that you were receiving, the education that you had. It was purely a hierarchy of class. And yeah, most people don't know this. The whole idea of how people's compassion was funneled into an, uh, this idea of wealth striation, further dividing people's wealth according to making sure that the wealthy, the families of the wealthy did not suffer um, 
any deprivation based on this terrible circumstance. And so they were guaranteed an income, you know, or a certain amount of money according to their wealth, et cetera, et cetera, down the line to people who were, you know, you know, the workers in the, in the restaurant or, or the, in the shopping mall below. So people did not develop an idea that we help those in need, that we all band together to help those in need when we face a crisis. Instead, the government response was constructed that the bands were striated according to class. Now, we almost take that for granted. People now are completely uh, separated by their social media friendships according to class and social media uh magnifies the the rage at those who don't agree with you and so we we have become polarized so much that this idea of compassion for the suffering and for the needy has kind of been lost um and 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 we don't have a language for that and it's really not very well shared. And it's been replaced by, uh, aside from the polarization into groups, it's also uh, replaced by a super suspiciousness, uh, kind of paranoid suspiciousness, conspiracy theories. And, and so you have you know, groups that believe things fundamentally differently. Um, I just read a poll that viewers of, uh, of Fox News believe that the information about the virus that they're getting from Trump is more accurate than the information delivered by the Center for Disease Control. Um, so the, the, you know, the divisions are so strong that you know, the sense of priorities, the sense of values are, are so different that basic universals, such as taking care of the most vulnerable, have gotten lost. And so I don't know that time-honored lessons from previous tragedies from 50 years ago, 100 years ago, are going to be drawn upon, that we turn to the elderly who've been through it and ask for their wisdom, because we are much more likely to turn to like-minded groups that Facebook feeds us by their algorithms. That's a very bleak, (laughs) frightening (laughs) kind of... uh portrayal but i think it's one that a lot of people may find themselves you know having some agreement with this really poignant and immense irony to this situation we've created structures in the society that as you say prevent us from paying attention to the wisdom of our elders and seem to uh devalue that um we've created structures that polarize and tribalize different groups and so when this crisis occurs, where we have a disease that is invisible and that we're told will be transmitted from person to person without our even knowing, without our having any symptoms, um, it seems to further reinforce those divisions that we've created for ourselves. And so we're starting to suspect that the time that comes after, like in a world that will be completely changed, will be one that we are encouraged to further and further isolate ourselves. Dr. Fauci said the other day that we should never shake hands again. What is the world that we can be looking forward to when um, the advice we're getting or what we're seeing is one that suggests that we should be fearful? Right. But I think we have to be very skeptical of the use that the 
virus is being put to for political and economic reasons. And I'm not, you know, of course there's a danger in hearing what I'm saying as a conspiracy theory, but let me say my view about this and let's see if it is, if I'm talking about a conspiracy or whether what I'm saying makes sense. I, I think that we always, that throughout history, Yes, there are definitely the dangers that face us, but there's also the use that people in power make of those dangers. So, you know, Susan Sontag wrote about the AIDS crisis, not only as uh, according to the horrors of AIDS, but the metaphoric use of the AIDS virus and contagion that was used socially to isolate certain groups of people. And so I think, once again, what we have now, this idea that this is a silently spread killer, we, we know a lot more about this virus than that the fear that people have developed over this you know this idea that any other human being is a potential carrier and it could potentially kill us we know for example who is actually vulnerable and who is much much less vulnerable the vulnerable people who are vulnerable to this illness are the elderly especially the elderly with an underlying condition the if you look at you know, who is likely to become hospitalized with this virus, people under age 50, are the, the chances are very, 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 very small if there's no underlying condition. And the people above 50, it increases with, as you age and it increases as you have an underlying condition. There's an exception to that, which are people who are under age 50 with a, num- you know, with a number of underlying conditions, and that makes the poor and minorities especially susceptible to the virus because of diabetes and asthma and the sequelae of being poor and having poor health care, at least in America. Another aspect you- of that that I was reading about is that in those in those uh, communities, there is a greater tendency for multi generational families, you know, to be living together, um, yes. and for them to be in just higher concentration. So there's someone some reporting just that there's not always necessarily like a health or biological vulnerability, but just a um, a social dynamic which is promoting transmission. So I just want that's, to- That's absolutely right. Yeah. That's right. And that's true not only culturally where generations, you know, uh, stay, live together, but also economically where generations uh, have to live together. So it's, it's a cultural phenomenon and it's an economic phenomenon. And so all of that adds up to us thinking, if we could stop thinking about COVID-19 as the threat to life, limb, and health on a broad scale, which is what's happened, right? So this illness is now taking the place of any kind of, of mortality or vulnerability. And so that's, that's the American way, by the way. And then you have, you know, the pharmaceutical companies who are going, who are the only ones we can turn to to be protected. So the whole American capitalist system, 
late capitalist system is that we have to turn to corporations to protect us. We can't turn to our own immune systems. We have to, you know, uh, subcontract our health to corporations and pay them for it. When in fact, the majority of people have their own immune systems that will protect them from this virus. And the if we were to uh, actually be sensitive to protecting the vulnerable and leaving aside for a minute our total belief that the only ones that are going to protect us are, are, is corporate America, if we actually allowed the vulnerable to be quarantined, and that is minorities who are vulnerable and old people to be who are vulnerable, those of us who are less susceptible took responsibility for taking care of the others. We could actually bypass the middle people who, you know, who, who we're all being taught to rely on for our protection. So we should actually be thinking of not how we have to wait for the vaccine before we go outside or shake another hand or, you, you know, wait for uh, a license of our immunity um, before we shake somebody's hands. We have to be thinking of public health and we have to be thinking of public health as a public good. And we have to be thinking about all aspects of society based on their susceptibility and their uh, inherent uh, uh, potential survivability and strength, not just because they got the virus and are immune, but because, you know, most people, even if they get it, it's not going to be the end of the world for them. So they, you know, need to, we need to, we need to create a whole consciousness that leaves out the metaphor of fear contagion that can only be resolved by corporate America. We have to instead think of protecting the vulnerable and protecting one another based on our own individual uh, likelihood of being uh, stricken in an overwhelming way or being, being relatively safe from what for most people is a virus with where there aren't even symptoms. That's not a terrible thing. We've been made to be afraid that, oh, everybody's a carrier because they don't have symptoms. No, it means that young people, students, kids, basically healthy people will survive this virus uh, without any problems. We've just got to develop ways of having those people take care of the vulnerable, and we have to develop a culture of looking, after, looking out for one another. Every worker on the front lines during an epidemic should be a young, healthy person, not a poor, black, vulnerable person. Mm -hmm. I mean, that just should go without, that. those are the structures that government should be putting in place today. And then we do protections. Of course, we want to protect those people, but, you know, as much as we can without thinking that if you test positive for the coronavirus, somehow you know, that's the end of the world and, and, and you, you are a leper in society. That is just not the case. You should be the kind of person who doesn't have to go home to, if you're working, you know, the front line, if you're responsible for, you know, unpacking groceries or, you know, a cashier, 
if you're if you're you know a cash register, you should be one of those people who doesn't go home to a grandparent who's vulnerable. We should be working during a few the few months of this epidemic to be looking out for each other in that way. And government is you know got two American government has you know trillions of dollars to which should be distributed to protect people right now so that people who have to stay home have some income and people and other people can be keeping the society moving and keeping people fed safe uh you know medically uh checked out etc cetera, etc cetera. keeping transportation moving ambulances moving child care available but we should be thinking about it not by making the vulnerable more vulnerable for people who are who have been now under lockdown for weeks, who have fears and who go through different phases of worrying about themselves, worrying about others, maybe how they're going to get through this, do you have some concrete advice for people just coping with the their day to day and what to uh, what kind of expectations to set for themselves, ways yeah. to reach out when they're in like more desperate need? You know, what what are some things, some advice you can you can offer? Yeah. Well, it's so different for different people. And I'm thinking about, you know, all the people I've been, you know, my patients who I've been speaking to, therapists who I've been consulting with, friends who I've been uh, socializing with um, and texting with, you know, people who are alone versus people who are cooped up with one another versus people who have the opportunity to take walks. So I, I think that First of all, I think people have to find a way, if they are available to them, to you know breathe the air outside. Um, if you're in a city, whether you can go up on the roof or whether it's possible to take walks that are safe, um, I don't know what the rules are. Also, checking in with a group of people. I've been finding that people are checking in with people who they you know, they just hadn't gotten around to being in touch with for a long time. And they're checking in with those people and having a chance to, to speak with those people. The mo- you know, one of the most important ways of getting through a crisis time is looking out for somebody else, finding a way to be available for other people. Now, what's fascinating to me is that and this is not unusual. I've been working with a lot of therapists who want to offer help to people who need it. And we have in New York, for example, there's a helpline you can call that has, you know, thousands of volunteer therapists. But in general, you know, this idea that people that people need therapy during a time like this, it, it turns out that, you know, what we end up is that we don't have that many patients who are looking for therapy because it's not that kind of a thing. It's not the time to talk about, you know, your long history of this problem. It's time to vent a little bit, time to have the reality of the difficulty acknowledged. It, it's, you know, it, this is what I said earlier, that we don't have a post-traumatic stress right now because we're not post. We're in the middle of it. So people kind of need to be validated that this is an unusual time. And people tend to have sort of instincts, but they maybe feel guilty. Like I I know people who are feeling guilty because they're doing mindless things, you know, watching like stupid TV or, (laughs) you know, what I did, (laughs) I, I took out of 
storage this old, very, very difficult uh, jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> and it, you know, I would go back to it whenever I was feeling stressed. I would do something as mindless as working on a jigsaw puzzle. And then I read an article that, you know, the jigsaw puzzle makers, the good jigsaw puzzle makers, where every piece is different, um, they, they are like on back order. People are ordering jigsaw puzzles like crazy. And so, and of course, computer gaming is also the, one of the most widely, that, that's what people are doing. And I just recommend that people not feel guilty about exercising their minds, but also exercising their mindlessness. I'm finding it personally helping me out. You know, and I also read more than I have read in a long time. And I am trying to actually limit how much news I read. I think I'm going to grab that that phrase exercising our mindlessness that is that is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's really important. I mean, listen, you can only be compassionate so many hours in a day. You can only, you know, do smart things or work so many hours in a day. Really, we also need to, you know, to be what many of us are able to be mindless on, you know, on the subway or the commute or, you know, grabbing a drink at a certain point. I think that we, now that we're quarantined and facing ourselves, we forget how much time of the day we waste because we have to. And so I'm recommending that people find, you know, pleasurable ways to waste time. If you're cooped up with other people, to do it alone. If you're alone, <laughs> find ways to do it with other people. But we need variety probably more than anything. And also, we all have to forgive ourselves and each other for our stress reactions because that is normal and it is to be expected. And whether we need to give other people a certain amount of, you know, of, of leeway, of breaks, um, of, you know, you get 10 really obnoxious statements or horrible things that you've said that I forgive you for each day now because it's just so much worse. So that we really do need to give ourselves a break and give each other a break. And we need to find ways of letting go. I think that's really important to let go of whatever we've held, our anger on Facebook. I mean, for my Facebook, it's the Biden supporters versus the Bernie supporters and how, how rapidly the angry responses have gotten and how extreme they are. And, and so the polarization of that, you know, that the other one hasn't actually thought through any of this or doesn't understand that it's a complicated situation that they've... I mean, this was a problem before COVID-19, honestly. This was such a social media problem based on Facebook algorithms. I did something on Facebook that was actually very interesting, which is to click so that you see the most recent posts, not the algorithmic posts that Facebook wants you to see. So instead of having Facebook serve the echo chamber of what it knows you want to see based on your likes and hates, you'll just see yeah. everything. I'll see everything that was posted based on most recent. And it's such a breath of fresh air. <laughs> Um, finally, Stephen, I wanted to ask you what in the past uh, month um, of this COVID-19 crisis has been kind of a big surprise or a shock to you? We've all gone through waves of concern and, and emotional distress, but um, has there been something or any anything particular that sort of stood out as really surprising you? 
I what what has surprised me is how a little generosity and compassion goes a long way, and how you know how surprised people were. I you know I, the first thing that happened before I left New York, there was this neighbor's uh, listserv that I was on. And people were posting on that listserv, uh, young people who were not afraid to go out were posting on that listserv that they would run errands for older people in the neighborhood and they would deliver food and they would do whatever was needed. And the gratitude that people who were older, because this, this was a community on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which has a, a lot of elderly people, how, you know, how moved people were both to do it and to receive it. And I, and I see that that has lasted. People who offer, um, you know, there's so many people offering that, you know, that people, you know, and, and so the possibility of creating community is there. And that happens, you know, happened in the beginning, but it's, this has been lasting and I, hopefully that will last. I think also what surprises me <laughs> a lot is that I have friends who are cooped up, completely quarantined, except for maybe going out once a week to a, a grocery store or whatever. And I will say to them, you know, let's, <laughs> let's have a, a social hour this evening or tomorrow. And they will say to me, well, I, 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 I'm free uh, next Thursday. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, these are people who, you know, are stuck at home, but people are finding ways of making use of this time. And so I am surprised at how creative and how social and how thoughtful people are finding ways to be even in this completely alien uh, lifestyle that we're facing every day. That really resonates for me is that in normal circumstances, we're able to fill our lives with work and play and cultural activities. And now that we're sort of forced to be home, it allows us to see them more clearly. What are the, you know, those core needs that we have? How are we able to bring those about for ourselves? Well, that to me is the most hopeful thing, because I think that we have not appreciated how much we have allowed consumerism and social media and uh, entertainment and medication and uh, substances to take more and more of the space that could be taken up by asking ourselves, what do we find meaningful in our lives? And now we have a real opportunity, just echoing what you said, to ask ourselves, what is genuinely meaningful and how are we going to make changes that maybe will last even when we get out of our house. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Stephen. Stephen Reisner is a therapist who is usually based in New York City uh, and is currently in France uh, in lockdown like everyone else. And Stephen has a long, long history of social justice and activist work in the field of psychology and wishing you all the best and looking forward to the next episode of Madness, the podcast. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks.